one of the primary rallying cries of the American Revolution was, no taxation without representation. Our American forebears did not appreciate England taxing without consent. And after gaining independence, ultimately, the United States set up a representative republic. We elect officials who ostensibly, at every level of government, represent our interests. The concept of representation is all throughout our government. It's all throughout our culture as well. Many of us choose to choose sports teams to represent us, to represent our rooting interests. Some of us choose authors or YouTubers to represent or articulate the way we think. If you buy a house, you hire a realtor to represent you in the negotiations. There may be a time that you need an attorney. You hire an attorney to represent you in court. Representation is here. Representation is there. Representation is everywhere in law, in life, but also in the Bible. We see this in the scriptures as well. The Bible teaches representation as well. And the Bible says, and we're going to look at this in Romans chapter 5, the Bible teaches that every person on the planet and every person who's ever lived is either represented by one of two men, either Adam, the first man, or Jesus, the Savior man. Every person, dead or alive, is either represented by Adam, the first man, or Jesus, the Savior man. This representation is thoroughgoing. We're going to see in Romans chapter 5 that what Adam did, you did, I did, if he's your representative. We're going to also see that what Jesus did, if he's our representative, you did, I did, as our cho- if he's our chosen representative. Now, here's the end of the representation. Any who are represented by Adam inherit death. Any who are represented by Christ inherit life. It matters greatly who your representative is. It matters greatly who your representative is. If you're a Christian, you are represented by Jesus Christ. Now, around here, We're used to hearing that Jesus died a substitutionary death. That's something we celebrate. That's something we sing about. That's something we preach about. That's something that we take great comfort in. But also, we're going to see from Romans chapter 5, that Jesus lived a substitutionary life for you as well. He didn't just die for you. He lived for you as well. And we can say the main idea from Romans chapter 5, verses 16 through 19, is this. Jesus lived for you and represents you now and forever. Jesus lived for you and represents you both now and forever. Now, if you're new, typically what we do is preach through books of the Bible. It's called expositional preaching. We've been in a series on 1 Timothy, and we decided to put that on pause. In the run-up to Easter, we decided to look at the different reasons Jesus Christ, our Savior, is preeminent, not just over our lives, but over all the world and all of human history. And so today, we're going to think together about why Jesus' life matters and how this shows him to be preeminent. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5, verse 16, and I'll read all the way down to verse 19. So if you have a Bible, 
follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And the free gift, verse 16, is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Let's pray. Lord, I feel, I, I, I just pray that you would help me as I preach, Lord. You know my limitations. You know that I am just a man. I'm a vapor here. I'm a mist here today and gone tomorrow. But you also, we also take confidence in the fact that your word stands forever. All the limitations I have, you do not have, Lord. And so I pray that you would work in and through my limitations and vulnerabilities to be able to communicate the truth of Romans chapter 5, verses 16 through 19. Lord, I pray, as I prayed privately, I pray publicly as well that you would bless the preaching of your word. We don't merely want to learn information that we can tuck away. We want to be impacted by the risen Savior. And this only happens as we open your word, thank your thoughts after you. And I pray that we would do just that this morning. I pray that you would help us, Lord. And in your name, we pray. Amen. We said that there are two representatives that represent all of mankind, Adam and Jesus. So we're going to examine both in turn. First, Adam. We saw this throughout Romans chapter 5, verses 16 through 19. But in Adam, we find one condemning trespass. One condemning trespass. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that at the very beginning of the Bible, there's a book whose name roughly means Origins, which we call Genesis. And in that book, we see the explanation of mankind's origin. We see how this world and the things of this world are so utterly broken. The origin of humanity has, is always of pressing concern, but it seems to be even of more pressing concern in these days. We read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God made, God the Father, made all things through the Son and created mankind to be unique. He created mankind, male and female, to represent him as kings and queens on earth. And those king, that king and that queen, the very first one, is Adam and Eve. And those first parents of ours did not rule well. We know this story from Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of the evil one. They ate from the one tree, the one and only tree of the garden they were forbidden 
to eat. Now, mind you, they lived in a paradise where there were plenty of other fruit-bearing trees from which they could enjoy. They ate from the forbidden fruit, not because they wanted to vary their diet up or try something new, but because Satan convinced them that God was, was holding back from them something good. And that choice, that choice was the first sin. It was the first act of treason by mankind. And with that treasonous act in the garden, sin entered the world. And hard on its heels came the, came the great enemy of humanity, death. Sin and death invaded God's good world. And from that point on, wherever sin went, death followed. And every descendant of Adam and Eve was born into sin and lives all of their days under the shadow and sentence of death. That's the nature of Adam's representation. I want to show you where I got that from. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. This is what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 5. You may hate what you're hearing, but it's from the Bible here. The second part of verse 16 says this about Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. In other words, Adam's sin, the judgment brings condemnation not just on Adam and Eve, but on every person who would follow. The first part of verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So remember, death came into the world through Adam's sin. First part of verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men and women, all mankind, we see death comes in because of Adam. We see this drumbeat, Adam sinned, condemnation comes. Adam sinned, condemnation comes. And then even the most, probably the most stark statement of all that is going to be most offensive to our 21st century American ears. First part of verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Do you see what he's saying there? This is radical and this is offensive. What is he saying? He's saying that when Adam disobeyed, you and me and all of humanity were made sinners. Adam's sin made you a sinner. Adam's sin made you guilty before God. Adam's sin makes all of humanity guilty before God. And what is the words? What did, we saw it three times in 16, 17, and 18, condemned. Adam's sin made you condemned before God. Adam's action in that garden long ago made us alike, all of humanity, sinners. All of us. And you might say, time out. Are you telling me that Adam's choice to rebel against God made me a sinner and condemned me to death? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that, that's what we're saying. You might be thinking, I didn't vote for this Adam guy. He's not representing me. Oh, he is representing you. You might wonder, Adam's guilty, so therefore I'm guilty? Yes. Adam did for me? Yes, he did. And we became sinners in solidarity with Adam. He is our natural representative. His record of, record of failure is our record of failure 
2. And you're going to say what I would say, what I have said when I read Romans chapter 5. How is that fair? I didn't choose Adam. We didn't have a straw poll. And the Lord say, okay, we're going to vote. And Adam wins. No, Adam was just the one created by God. How is that fair? Let's think about this for a second. God knows what he's doing. And he knows how to choose the best. He chose the best of mankind, of humanity, to represent humanity. God chose the best human and put him in the best situation. He's in paradise. He has no needs. He has complete complete and total security. And yet, he failed. His failure is your failure, is my failure. And you might think, if you were in the garden, you wouldn't succumb to the devil like Adam did. If you think that, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. Adam did for us what we would do if we were there, all of us. His failure is our failure, each of us. Each of us. His sin is our sin. His guilt is our guilt. His condemnation is our condemnation. His death is our future death sentence, or our current death sentence and our future death. And you might think, dang, that's a downer. That stinks. It does. It does. It does if Adam was the only representative. Adam has, there, there is another representative aside from Adam, and his name is Jesus. Let's talk about him. Let's move from Adam and his one condemning trespass, and let's move to Jesus. We see in Jesus one reviving life. Jesus, one reviving life. We're used to thinking that Jesus' death matters, and it does, but his life matters too. Jesus lived a substitutionary life. In other words, he lived the life we could not live He lived in total obedience for himself, but also for us. His record, as Christians, if we're Christians, his record is our record. Let me show you where I got that from. Verses 16 through 19, you have this back and forth. Adam and Jesus, Adam and Jesus, Adam and Jesus. This goes back and forth. Sometimes reading Paul is hard. That's why I'm breaking it up this way. But this is what's happening, this back and forth comparison. In verse 16, the third part of verse 16, we read this. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The free gift of grace from Jesus to all Christians is justification. What is that? Justification is the legal declaration before the court of God that Christians, that you, if you're a Christian, are declared righteous. Though you be unrighteous, you are declared righteous because you're in Christ. The second half of verse 17. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see that? An abundance of grace. So we have, as Christians, received an abundance of grace. Grace is not a mystical vapor that magically comes in and is like glitter and does religious things. Rather, grace is merely a one-word description of the favor and blessing we receive from the Father 
by the hands of Jesus Christ. Second half of verse 18. So the one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Life. John calls this eternal life. Jesus gives life and robs us of our death sentence. And verses 19, the second half of verse 19. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you hear that? By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Unrighteous will be made righteous. Jesus came to reverse the power of sin and the grip of death on the sons of and sons and daughters of, of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. When Jesus came, if you're a Christian, what you can recognize and what you can see in Romans chapter five is that when Jesus came and he lived, he came and he lived for you. His obedience, his obedience, if you're a Christian, is reckoned to you. The record of Adam, remember we said it's condemnation, it's death. And you think, how is that fair? I didn't do any of those things. Well, let's think about fair now. Jesus, the spotless one, the Lamb of God without any defect, Jesus now says to all those who follow him, Jesus says, my record is your record. Now that is astounding. Jesus is the one man who obeyed so that we, who are unrighteous, might be made righteous. See, when Jesus walked the world, when he walked into this world, he never shirked a responsibility. He always said and did the right thing. He never left any good deed undone. He never sinned by either omission or commission. He was always doing the Father's will and never disobeyed the Father. Does that sound like us? No, that does not sound like us. We don't always do the Father's will, and we do disobey. But because He obeyed, and we trust Him, we receive the benefit of His obedience. That, friends, is not fair. Let's compare the two representatives, the two choices. Maybe you're standing on the fence, and you're wondering, which way do I go? Let's compare the two choices. Adam was created to reign as king and wanted to be God. And he turned from God. Therefore, he passed on to all his descendants the sentence of death. Jesus was not created, but was God and king. Yet he became man and always only acted to obey his father. Therefore, he passed on to all who are willing, his spiritual descendants, the gift of life. Christopher Ashe says it this way. Just as Adam's disobedience made us sinners, both in status, counted sinners before God, and actuality, our sinful nature, so the act of obedience of Jesus guarantees that all believers will be made righteous in status now, justification and union with Christ, and inwardly on the last day when the Spirit's work will be complete. See, here's the logic of the gospel. You and I are guilty. We're guilty. We're born guilty. We were born with an inclination to sin. 
We were born with an inclination to turn away. We were born with the treasonous DNA that we inherited from Adam. But then Jesus came. And in coming, he came to erase the record of debt that was against us. He saw us stuck. Because as you read, as you read Romans chapter 5, if there's no talk about Jesus here, what we see is that we have a people, anyone, every person is made a sinner because of what Adam has done. Trapped in sin and death and, and awaiting death. We have this as the, as the status of mankind before God. Then Jesus comes. Jesus obeyed for us. Now notice, so I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not down on forgiveness. We love and celebrate the blessing of forgiveness around here. It's wonderful. But sometimes we can have this idea that forgiveness is just sort of the Lord saying, eh, it's okay. Wink, wink his eye and say, mm, you know what, you're only human. But that's not the ground of our forgiveness. The ground of our forgiveness is, is, is the fact that Jesus obeyed in our place. He obeyed for us, making his record our record. His record of obedience has become our record because we are in Christ. We are now judged based on what Christ has done for us. This is why his perfect obedience matters. He obeyed, and he obeyed for you. Now, is it fair that we get Christ's record of obedience imputed to us? No. But friends, this is the logic of the gospel. When we sin, and we do sin, even as Christians, we can go again and again and again to the Lord for pardon, for restoration. And one of the reasons we have audience before the Father is because the Son obeyed perfectly for us. Though we sin and fall short and are awash with unrighteousness, we have been declared righteous by the active obedience of Jesus Christ. No wonder we call him Savior. Our representative is better than Adam. Adam was created to rule for God and placed in a paradise we call Eden. Jesus took on flesh to represent God and placed in a spiritual wasteland we call earth. Adam was righteous, but by sinning became unrighteous. Jesus was righteous and never sinned so that we might be declared righteous. Adam sinned and brought death. Jesus took on sin and died. Adam's descendants are born in the grip of sin. Christ's followers are reborn, and the power of sin is forever and decisively broken. Why? Christ obeyed for us. If you're a Christian, his record of obedience is now your record. Talk about not fair. Jesus obeyed for you. We have more in Christ now as Christians than we ever lost in Adam. We have more in Christ now than we ever lost in Adam. Adam was in paradise. He wasn't hungry. He wasn't tired. 
He saw, he ate all the fruit he wanted. He was strong. He wasn't lonely, yet he wilted under the temptation of the evil one. Jesus? What about Jesus? Jesus, in other places, is like, it's called the new Adam. He wandered in a wilderness for 40 days without eating anything, and by the end he was hungry. Maybe you're wondering, if you read the Gospels, you see in every four, every, each one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the temptation. Now, why did each of the Gospel writers put the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? Not just to say, hey, look how great he is. He is. But also to show that he obeys on behalf of his people in the most dire of circumstances. Jesus is in the desert after 40 days, hungry, tired, alone, and definitely not in paradise. He's in the desert. We know that is not paradise. And the devil comes to him. Now, he's low, he's vulnerable, and here comes the devil. Now, think about when the devil approaches Adam. Not totally different, totally different. Here he approaches Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verse 3 says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command this stone to become bread. Now, let's stop and think, okay, let's put ourselves in this situation. That's heresy, but we're going to do it anyway for just a moment. If I'm in the desert, let's say, and I haven't eaten for 40 minutes, maybe 40 hours, if I'm really being godly, and the devil shows up and says, listen, you have the power to turn this stone into bread. I'd be like, awesome. Dave's killer white bread, boom, there we go. I'm hungry. But not Jesus. If we had the power to make stones, bread, we would have done it. But Jesus, he didn't. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Satan is asking Jesus to prove himself by working a miracle only to satisfy his own needs. One that he was not directed by the Father to do. Instead of trusting the Father, the devil wanted him to provide for himself. Jesus responds by saying, it's more important to trust the Lord and satisfy yourself in him than tend to your own hunger. And as we read that, we can read that and every other time in the gospel where he obeyed and say, yes, he did that for me. We're standing on the sidelines rooting for Jesus and guess what? He comes through, he's hungry, he's tired, he's alone, he's faced with Satan, and he makes it through for us. And then the devil, well, the devil's not done. I mean, with Adam, it's come once, I'm out. It's a little harder with Jesus. And so then the devil was thwarted with the whole stone and bread thing. And so we read in verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in one moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, I'm going to leave to the side and not say much about how the devil's overstating his case here and what he has, but we'll leave that to the side. The father of lies has been known to exaggerate. I'll just say that. But imagine if this was you. Imagine if the devil said, listen, I'll give you anything you want. I'll give you the body you want. 
I'll give you the fame you want. I'll give you the job you want. I'll give you every, the money, the home, the longevity, the health, the happiness. I'll give it all to you. Many people have made that deal, but not Jesus. He says, it is written, you shall, not wor- you shall worship the Lord your God and serve, only shall you serve him. Satan's offer was a way that Jesus could rule without going to the cross, without dying and rising again, and he would have none of it. And as he does this, and if you think, <laughs> if you think this wasn't a temptation, this is called the temptation for a reason, the Satan, focused, Satan brought this to Jesus. It was a real temptation to know that he wouldn't have to carry the, the wrath of God on him as he died on the cross. And yet, he pushed away the temptation. And he did it. Why did he do it? Because it was the right thing to do, yes, but also for us. Satan's not done. And he, being Satan, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, Satan knows the Bible too. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan quotes Psalm 91. He says, listen, I got verses too. You get verses? I got verses. Here's some verses. What if... Satan took us up to the top of this big, tent, this big building and said, listen, there's all kinds of cameras down there. All you need to do is jump. And what will happen is people, then you're going to go to the bottom and you're going to be caught and it's going to be amazing. People are going to videotape you and it's going to go viral and you're going to be a star. You're going to be the hottest thing. You're going to be trending. everybody's going to want to have a, an audience with you. They're going to want to come talk to you. They're going to want to know how you did that. And they're going to know you as a powerful person. We'd probably do it. Not Jesus. Jesus answered him and said, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus would not test his father. He only always obeyed his father. He did this because it was right, but he also did it for us. He obeyed for us. His record of obedience is now our record of obedience. Now, some might object and say, if this is true, if his record is really my record, then I can do whatever I want. I don't have to obey. I don't have to follow Jesus. I can just Live how I want, do what I want. Because Jesus, his record's my record. Now, if you think that way, you don't understand the gospel or what I'm saying. No genuine Christian can live in ongoing, unrepentant sin. Authentic Christians who receive new life from Christ, they, meet, they receive new inclinations, new desires. They will want to obey. They will want to please the Lord at conversions. Christians are made, at their conversions, Christians are made new. The old is gone and the new has come, as 2 Corinthians says. No genuine Christian is going to want to live that way. Now, will we disobey? Yes. Will it grieve us? Yes. But if you are able to disobey in a constant way without it grieving you, his record is not your record. His record, your record is Adam's record. 
But if you follow Jesus faithfully, which is not going to be flawlessly, but authentically and faithfully, and when you see sin, because you will sin, and you go again to the Father, you know that you will not be alienated. Why? Because you deserve to have an audience with the Father? No. Because you're really sorry for your sin? No. Although it's good to have sorrow. But because Jesus has obeyed in your place. He lived a substitutionary life for you. You should be confident that you are represented by Jesus. And His record is your record. We Christians are not represented by Adam anymore. We have life. Christ is preeminent. His record is our record. He obeyed where we disobeyed. See, the power of sin has been forcefully interrupted for us. And we look, not to ourselves, for the reasons, but we look to Jesus. Adam brought death. Jesus brings life. Adam delivered condemnation to us. Jesus delivers justification to us. Adam caused death to reign in us. Jesus causes us to reign over in this world. Adam made all sinners. Jesus makes any who, any who are willing righteous. As we close, I have to ask two questions. Does Adam represent you? If he does, remember, his record is your record and his sentence is condemnation. And if you're in Adam, your sentence is condemnation. I think it's pertinent for us to think about this for a moment or two. There's people, there are people who have grown up in church and know the truth, and it's possible to know the truth, even know about Jesus, even, being, even be able to spout off orthodox views about Jesus, but yet not really being a follower of Jesus. Just because you can explain the active obedience of Christ and how that differs from the passive obedience of Christ, that does not mean necessarily that you are a disciple of Christ. If you are comfortable living in unrepentant sin, you should have no confidence that Christ's record is your record. So if you're able, in your own conscience, to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you're unscrupulous in your business practices, if you're habitually harsh and unkind to people, if you live a double life, if you have this constant simmering anger against your spouse, if, you're constant, if you have this constant simmering bitterness against anybody, you must recognize that it could be that Adam represents you. If you're not grieved by those things, if those things don't bother you, and you're just saying, well, it doesn't matter, I'll just do what I want to do because Jesus' record is my record. No, that is fake grace. But real grace changes everything. Christians, are you comforted by the fact that Jesus is your representative? I hope so. I hope so. Last week, we saw that Robert Murray McShane gave us some really, really solid advice. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Now, in this service, we've probably taken 40 looks at Christ, which is good. And we need to keep doing that. We need to keep looking away from ourselves and look to Christ. See, what we see in Romans chapter 5 is that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has obeyed for us. He obeyed in ways 
that we could never obey. He was perfect. He was flawless. He never disobeyed in thought or deed or action. And if you are in Christ, his record, the blessing that is accrued to him, that blessing is now yours. You know what that's called? Grace. The Son's sparkling record is yours. Our rotten record has been overwritten by the record of obedience that the Son of God has. There is no wrath left for us. The Father's not looking to get back at you. He's not looking to punish you. See, this is especially hard to recognize that His record is our record when we go through suffering. When the winds of suffering blows against our souls, in those times we can be tempted to believe that, well, the Lord's getting back at me for what I did here or there or whatever. I'm just being punished. This is what I deserve. No. No, you deserve worse. You deserve... No, what do you deserve? You, you were treasonous against the Holy God. You deserve to be condemned and experience eternal death. But that is not what you get if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you do not receive what you deserve. You receive instead what Christ deserves. The blessing that he accrued is now yours. Jesus, because you're in him, heaps blessing upon blessing upon blessing on you. See, grace is always more powerful than sin. Grace is much more sturdy than death. This is why Romans 8 can tell us that we Christians, we flawed, faltering, weak, Christians can be what? More than conquerors. Not just a conqueror, but more than that. We're more than conquerors. How? In Christ Jesus. We're more than conquerors because Christ has conquered all things for us. And we have chosen to associate with him. We have said, my record is rotten. My record is bankrupt. My record is horrendous. My record is deserving of condemnation. My record is deserving of eternal punishment. I don't want that. And because Jesus lived a perfect life, a substitutionary life now, that record that is his is ours. Friends, that makes us conquerors because Jesus is our representative. Praise God. He is our representative. We can be confident without having hubris. We can be confident because our status in Christ, if you're a genuine Christian, cannot and does not change. It will never change because he has passed through death, defeated death, risen from the dead, and ascended to the Father at the right hand. And his status, because his status won't change, neither will ours. So friends, Jesus, what did he do in his life? He lived for you. And he represents you both now and forever. Glory be. Glory be to God.
Let's pray. Lord, these things we do not deserve. More than that. You know we deserve, Lord. We deserve alienation. We deserve punishment. We deserve eternal wrath, but we have received in your Son. We have received in your Son forgiveness, blessing, favor, grace. His record has has overwritten ours so that we can look to our Savior and know that our Savior, when He obeyed perfectly in His life, He obeyed because of the right thing, yes, but because He also obeyed on our behalf. And so, Lord, I pray that You would... I, I just pray that You would give us confidence as Christians in this truth, in this reality. Lord, it's very easy for Christians to be... for, for us to be captured by all the different ways we fall short, and we do fall short, Lord. And it can sap us of confidence. Lord, I pray that we would stop looking at ourselves for reason of com- reasons for confidence and look away and look to you, Jesus, and recognize that in the, in the desert, you obeyed for us. In the garden, you obeyed for us. In the temple, you obeyed for us. Where we would have failed, you obeyed. And so for that, we are grateful. And we stand not condemned, but declared righteous. More than we could ever hope for. Completely unfair. But grace is never fair. And we're grateful for that. We're grateful that you show your preeminence in giving sinners like me and us your record, the blessing of your record. It's in your name, Jesus, that we give thanks today, tomorrow, and for all time that we pray. Amen.